wie die Deutschen sagen, ich bin sehr froh, dass Sie hier sind. Please, oh, please stand, <laughs> as you are able, for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. I will be reading in German. The English text will be on the screen. Und ich sah den Himmel geöffnet und siehe ein weißes Pferd. Und der daraus saß, heißt der Treue und der Wahrhaftige. Und in Gerechtigkeit richtet und kämpft hier. Seine Augen aber sind wie eine Flamme, Feuerflamme. Und auf seinem Haupt sind viele Kronen. Und er trägt einen Namen geschrieben, den niemand kennt als nur er selbst. Und er, er ist bekleidet mit einem Gewand, das in Blut getaucht ist, und sein Name heißt das Wort Gottes. Und die Herren im Himmel folgten ihm nach aus weißen Pferden, und sie waren bekleidet mit weißer und reinen Leinwand. Und aus seinem Mund geht ein scharfes Schwert hervor, damit er die Heidenvölker mit ihm schlage, und er wird sie mit eisernem Stab weiden, und er tritt die Weinkälte des Grimmes und des Thrones Gottes des Allmächtigen. Und er trägt an seinem Gewand und an seiner Hüfte den Namen geschrieben, König der Könige und Herr der Herren. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, church, kids are dismissed for Children's Church and a reminder for your parents to pick them up right before or right after you take communion. If you're visiting this morning, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity City Church. I have, uh, have the joy, along with some other uh, preachers, to be able to take us through this sermon series on the book of Revelation. We are nearing the end of the book. Uh, we're going to be wrapping this book up in the month of June before we switch back to a sermon series we do every summer, uh, Summer in the Psalms. We tackle 10 different psalms in uh, the book of Psalms, and we'll be starting that at the very end of June, uh, and that will take us all the way through Labor Day. So we have, including today, five Sundays left in the book of Revelation. We're going to tackle three chapters today uh, because, again, we're trying to give a, a, a bigger overview of some of the visions and what they're, what they're up to, but maybe at a manageable pace so that we can lean into some of the details of the book of Revelation. As many of you know, Revelation is a pretty hotly debated book with lots of different opinions. And what we've been trying to do as we go through each one of these visions is to really emphasize the theological point of each one of these visions. What does God's word, as we encounter these visions with John, what does God's word want us to take away in our hearts, in our everyday life? That's what we have been really trying to focus on uh, today. So let's go ahead and pray and dive into Revelation chapter 17 all the way through chapter 19. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this gathering. It's a sign, Lord, that you are still at work in this world. You are drawing people to faith. You are building faith. You are encouraging your saints. You're bringing weary hearts to a sanctuary, a place of refuge and rest, because that's what we are called to do, is to rest in your word, to believe the promises, to let the truth of your word uphold us uh, 
and to give us strength. And Lord, we ask for that right now as we gather here. We need your word, Lord, to continue to persevere, to continue to have faith, to continue to put one foot in front of the other throughout this week. Lord, we need to hear from you. So Lord, we ask that you speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't often do this, but last week I'm going to have to take offense to something that the preacher had said. We had a guest preacher last week, so it wasn't me. I do take offense to my own preaching sometimes too, but this was a guest preacher. We had a missionary, a pastor from uh, Czech that came and visited and, and expounded some texts from uh, the Gospels, and it was, the, the sermon all, overall was great. I, I, I had hadn't had too much to nitpick from it, but he did say something that me as a Minnesotan, and maybe you too, uh, it stood out, and it kind of hurt a little bit. He just, and I don't even remember what his point in bringing this up was, but he just mentioned how Minnesotans, and we as Minnesotans, uh, were part of a losing culture. Do you remember that? Remember how offensive that is, somebody from another country coming into our state? Like, it's one thing for me saying it, I'm Minnesotan, all right? And he, he's right, we are part of a losing culture, but like, sometimes it's hard to hear it. Sometimes it's hard to hear it from somebody else. And he was really drawing probably from the reality of our sports culture, among other things, but especially the sports culture. We have a football team that uh, likes to do re- great in the regular season and then terrible in the playoffs. They can't even uh, muster the ambition to, to win a Super Bowl in their history. And then my favorite team just happens to be the worst sports franchise in history, the Timberwolves. That's who I cheer for, right? right? And it, it's just, it's just it, is, it, is, it is the reality that they, they barely make the playoffs. When they do, they typically lose in the first round. And I mean, we have the glory days of like the Twins in the late 80s, early 90s, but that seems to be such a distant thing in the past. But I mean, as some of you would know though, but you could push back still and say, hey, you didn't mention anything about the Lynx, our dynasty, right? The, the Minnesota Lynx are, 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 are like Chicago Bulls, right? Of, of, of kind of Minnesota sports is, is the Lynx, right? And we could point to them versus if you're a Lynx fan, then you are part of a winning culture. If you're a Timberwolves fan like me, the closest you get to a championship is when they trade away your favorite player to Boston and he wins with them, right? So that's as close as I ever got to winning culture, right? So I think we as Minnesotans understand maybe this aspect of like you almost anticipate losing. It's not going to go well, especially when you cheer for many of your, your favorite athletes or favorite teams. And sometimes I, I, I pick up the same type of like losing culture uh, kind of perspective from Christians. Maybe not throughout your whole life, but maybe you've been experiencing a season where that's kind of how you feel about faith and the church and global Christianity, that it just seems to be up against a lot. That it's, it's, we're, we're, we're facing things that we're just constantly getting beat back and we're losing. Maybe you're looking at the decline of the American church and you're discouraged by that. It seems like we're losing. Or you're looking at uh, still nations where Christians are persecuted and that's discouraging to you. Maybe you're just even looking at the world as a Christian who loves justice and mercy and you're discouraged about the systemic and personal things that still happen in our neighborhood, in our city, and even our world that shouldn't be that way. It's not what it ought not to be like. And that's not even to mention our own personal experiences as we experience things like broken relationship or seen a loved one that used to love the Lord and fall away and get caught up into the ways of this world. Or maybe you're just here and you're just exhausted in your own faith and your own struggles and you just don't know if you can keep moving ahead. Maybe this is the culture that you're feeling and it's like 
feeling like you're a part of a losing culture. But I think book, the book of Revelation, especially the passage today, reminds us of what is real. If you've ever felt like this as a Christian, the book of Revelation is one of those books that unmasks the world, unmasks the realities ahead of us, and shows us what is real. And what is real is even though it seems that sometimes maybe the church or yourself or your own relationships are defeated, in the long run, in the, in the bigger story, what happens at the end is that God wins. Christ is victorious. The powers that we face, and we should feel this way, that seem to be so great that we could never overcome these things by ourselves, we are reminded that that's not our call anyways, is to defeat these things by ourselves, but we in Christ get to see the victory. And that's what Revelation 17 through 19 is all about. If you've been following the book of Revelation, you know that there has been this, this kind of tension already building up between Babylon and the church, between these beasts and dragons that are facing off against the Lamb of God and his army. And here we, we get something in more detail that we've only had a glimpse of throughout the book of Revelation. There's been mentions of victory. There's been mentions and promises that God is going to win in the end. But these chapters go into great detail about that final scene, that final battle, and that final victory. So let's get into this vision with John, starting in chapter 17, verses 1 through 2. Here we see the fall of a great city. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls came to me and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. The vision is shifting from last week, the vision of the seven bowls of God's wrath, which I've said is the modern equivalent of God opening a can, and that was what we saw last week. And now that's, again, like often happens in the book of Revelation, that vision is shifting and fading away and another one is coming into view and here now John sees a different vision that of a great prostitute and in verse 5 of this chapter this great prostitute is given her identity verse 5 says this is Babylon the great the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth there's already a lot going on in this vision you have to remember that in the Old Testament Babylon is the main city that belonged to God's ultimate enemy that was against his people. It was a city that sat by many waters, which here symbolizes all the kings and the peoples and the nations over which Babylon rules. And Babylon was that city, was that nation who came against the nation of Israel, destroyed God's temple, and carried God's people into exile. And so this city is being described not only as a place of power and wealth, but also a place of idolatry and immorality. Babylon here is not just about the literal city of Babylon, but what Babylon now represents in the biblical framework. This is the place that symbolizes worldly power, affluence, immorality, and idolatry, and all the things that are hostile to God's people and God's plan. Now, the original readers likely would have thought about Rome and the Roman Empire when they read this. That's likely what the original readers would have thought, which was another powerful city, another powerful nation that destroyed God's temple and persecuted God's people. 
Yet Babylon likely does not represent just one specific city in one specific time, but symbolizes any nation or power that grows hostile to God's people and God's ways. Every Christian, therefore, in every age can see a Babylon they are facing in this world that is not our home, because we too are exiles who await our heavenly city where we truly belong, and we're getting caught up in that vision here with John. In this vision, Babylon is not only pictured as a city, but a great prostitute. Verse 4 says, The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and filth, the filth of her adulteries. Her clothing is symbolizing and showing prosperity. There's purple and gold and precious metals, and yet she has scarlet because of her role in persecution of God's people. She has the blood of the innocent on her and in, on her hands. And she also has this golden cup, and it's not filled with fine wine of righteousness, it's filled with filth and things that are abominable, like immorality and unclean spirits and idolatry. And you might be, if you're, if you're following along with the book of Revelation, have, have remembered now how many times this cup imagery or this imagery of like drinking wine into drunkenness continues to come up. And the, drinking the wine of Babylon or drinking from this cup from the prostitute, this is a dominant image. And it's the image of how uh, drunkenness is an Old Testament way of illustrating how one becomes blind to God and desensitized righteousness because they are consumed with unfaithfulness. And that's showing up here again. That's, that's who are, 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 are caught up with the, the prostitute as they are drinking from her cup and they're caught up in this unfaithfulness. Other kinds of people are drinking from this cup, but she also is drunk, it says, Revelation 17, 6, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore the testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. So we are likely to see in this vision, right? If you're, if you're tracking so far, you're looking at Babylon you're, you're looking at that city, you're looking at the prostitute, and you're thinking probably, how can anybody be caught up in this? Why would you drink from this cup? Why would you participate in this society? How can anybody be seduced by this murderous prostitute? Like, how, how does that even happen? But well, we have to remember that we are seeing this vision, and the purpose of the vision is to unmask the reality. We see what's really behind this seduction. We see what's really behind this cultural powers, right? But if you're just experiencing it without knowing what it's actually like when it's unmasked, then it looks lovely. It looks like something you want to get caught up in. It looks like something that this, this is how I can grow in my own affluence, my own joy, and maybe even my own love and love of self or love of others. You, you think that this, this looks great because it's not unmasked. To be part of Babylon, for example, means that you get to go with the grain of culture, right? You, you get to celebrate all that culture celebrates and condemn all that culture condemns. You're, you're, you get rewarded for those things. And you get to be part of the machine that promises wealth, recognition, and power. It's the offer of the good life. That's what it looks like when it's not unmasked. Yet the unmasking is showing us that this offer isn't an invitation into love and joy, but rather the very things that destroy us because they're pulling us away from God. 
That's why the imagery of seduction as connected to this prostitute is present. It's the promise of love, but that's not actually what you're seduced into. Because love draws one into a life of covenant and sacrifice and peace, but seduction promises those things. But once you're drawn into, all you, into these things, all you experience is unfaithfulness, brokenness, and chaos. I mean, just think about this, like, go from this image and just think about your everyday life because I'm sure this is a common experience. Have you ever, have you ever experienced something where you had a loved one and that loved one just, like, falls for somebody, head over heels? This is going to be the greatest thing ever. This is going to be the greatest relationship, right? But you know enough about the situation and maybe that person to know, like, that's going to be a toxic relationship. That's going to be awful for you. Don't do it. Don't fall for this person. This person is promising you love, but all you're going to get is gaslighting, right? And you know it, but that person doesn't see it. But John in the Revelation wants us to see it, does not want us to be seduced by this promise of joy and power and love and be caught up into it, but to, for it to be unmasked for what it really is. This is Babylon behind this great city. This is a prostitute behind this call of love. It's really seduction. And who's behind all this? Who's behind Babylon? Who's behind uh, the, the, the power and the lure of this great prostitute? It is the beast, the scarlet beast specifically, because real evil power is what's behind uh, the things that want to destroy God's good world. Look at this in Revelation 17.3. There I saw the woman, this is Babylon, the great prostitute, mixing these metaphors, sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. This is the same sea beast that showed up in chapter 13 along with this land beast that was also identified as the false prophet. And then there was the dragon. This is the unholy trinity of the book of Revelation, the two beasts and the dragon. Here, this beast is described as being scarlet, which not only connects it to the persecution of God's people, but back to the dragon in chapter 13, who is Satan. In verses 7 through 15, an angel explains to John what he sees. And there's some places in Revelation where he does this. I, I always enjoy studying the chapters in Revelation where it gives you the vision, and then the angel says, this is what the imagery represents, this is what you see, but it only does it sometimes. It's kind of like if you ever had math class and, and you weren't really good like, at math, like maybe me, I'm not great at math, but I always liked looking up uh, the answers of the odd questions in the back of the book so you knew you can at least get 50% of them right. That's kind of how Revelation feels to me sometimes. Like he gives us a little bit, like he gives us like the odd answers, right? But the even ones we kind of have to figure out. And really the point of that to be able to check those things is to develop like an instinct of how to interpret the book of Revelation, especially with all this rich imagery that's drawn from the Old Testament. And the angel is identifying that, drawing from imagery in the book of Daniel. The ten horns represent power, especially through earthly rulers. The angel says that the seven heads are seven hills. And in the Old Testament, hills symbolize kingdoms. So there are seven heads or hills, and it's the fullness of oppressive kingdoms throughout time as it culminates into one ruler, it says, the eighth one, who will face off against the Lamb. 
The beast has the appearance of sovereignty and control, even taking on some of the ways that the book of Revelation describes the power of God in Christ. Those things are attributed to the beast because he's trying to falsely claim sovereignty and kingship, yet his power is actually fragile and temporary. And while it can, the beast is using power to force conformity. The beast wants to pull people away from God and to the allegiance of the dragon. He uses rulers and military and politics and policies and culture, any form of power, to do so. So now what happens in this like, relationship here in this vision? You have Babylon, the great prostitute, and she's given her allegiance to the beast. And what happens now to those two? What happens when a system is built on the promises of evil? Look at Revelation 17, 16. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked, and they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. What a vivid and, and just sobering, right, description there. And th what this description really is, is this is what evil does. Evil turns on itself. Evil, evil eats itself. Evil will bring destruction upon itself. A city, a kingdom, a culture built on this sand will eventually sink, and that's what happens here. Babylon is built on the evil of the beast, and it will be destroyed because that's what it grounds itself in. And if you read all of chapter 18, it either laments or celebrates the fall of Babylon. The economic powerhouse, the military might, the sovereign power, it all falls apart because it's built on this evil. Revelation 18, 14 through 17, for example, this is how it's pictured. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe! Woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who traveled by the ship, the sailors and all who earned their living from the sea, will stand far off. What, a, what another sobering picture there. You have these, these merchants, these, these business leaders, right? These, these captains who benefited from the wealth and the power of Babylon. And probably in their mind, they never thought, like this powerhouse, this thing that I built my life around, that I, that I got rich off of, she's never going to fall. And here it says, and that's what that language, within an hour, it was, like, it was like a blink of the eye. It just all came crumbling down. It, it just all fell apart because it was built on the power of evil and not the glory of God. That's what, and that's what you see is this picture of the people that, do, that depended on this, that built their life on this city, on this culture, and they are wrecked as they see it destroyed. But God's people respond differently. In Revelation 19, 1 through 2, they are rejoicing. After this, I heard what sounded like a, the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants." 
So that's the celebration. Because you got to remember that these people are the ones that have been caught up in the injustices and the lies and the seduction of this place. And now God's judgment and justice finally comes. But it happened now to Babylon. It happened to the great prostitute. It self-destructed. But what about the beast? The beast is still there, and the beast is still holding power. So what's going to happen there? And in Revelation 17, 14, you get a peak, as you have throughout the book of Revelation, of what is about to go down. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be, be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. And most of the time in the book of Revelation, that's kind of all you get, and it moves on. But now in this part of Revelation, you get a detailed vision of the final battle, of how this is all going to end, because now the Lamb is about to face the beasts once and for all. And we get that description of who this warrior Messiah is in chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Let me read that in its entirety, so you can just get captured by this vision of Christ. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Here we have another vision of Christ in the book of Revelation. And it's a very different vision than what we see in the Gospels. In the Gospels we see Jesus riding on a donkey, but this time he is riding on a white horse. This is a war horse. And he's white because that's the color of victory. The victory is as good as done even though the battle has not been engaged yet. The rider is called faithful and true and not unfaithful and deceptive like Babylon and the beast. They ruled with injustice, but Christ judges with justice. His blazing eyes symbolize that the just judgment that he has and the crowns are are showing the true authority of the Lord of all. His name is described as unknown because of his infinite nature, yet the passage does reveal aspects of his name as the one who's faithful and true, that he's the very word of God, that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. His role of judge and warrior is further described with his robe that has been dipped in blood, which is connected to that imagery that's been throughout the book of Revelation of God's wrath being described as a winepress that stomps on the enemies of God. A sharp sword comes out of his mouth, which is the word of God, and the word that is judgment from a just judge and a king who rules. And behind this warrior Messiah, did you see that, is an army of heaven, which are his people who wear, wear his righteousness. They wear these robes of purity, and they also ride horses because they get his victory. 
that he gets on their behalf. So that's who you have in one corner, right? So this is a battle that's about to shape up. This is who you see coming out of the one end of the arena, right? The warrior Messiah with his righteous army behind him. And here is what you see in the other pathetic corner. Revelation 19, 19 through 21. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of his mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Remember those two beasts. The sea beast and the land beast, they're both here. One's pictured as the beast and the other one's called the false prophet because of its use of propaganda and deception to point people away from God. And here they're getting their armies together, all the people that they whipped up and deceived to be against Christ, and they show up. And, and I, 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 this is such a big, majestic picture that I, the way that I just thought of this, that I want you to kind of, like, I want you to maybe feel what this would feel like, right? To see Christ finally show up against these powers that you have been facing where you're just like, I cannot conquer these powers. I cannot overcome these evils. And you keep getting beat and beat and beat and you just feel so defeated and finally he shows up, right? That's that's going to be amazing, that feeling. And we get that feeling already in the cross and resurrection of Christ, and it's going to happen in the end of days. Like, the way that I thought of it, just to bring it home for me, is I'm, I'm the youngest in my family. I had two older, brutal brothers, boneheaded people, right, that were, that were, that were in the house with me. And they, like, like older siblings, right, picked on me, right? They, they threw their weight around and their, their age and they were deceptive and stupid. They just were like two beasts, right? That's what my brothers were 100% like, right? And it's, it's, it sometimes gets so discouraging and frustrating and tiring, right? Being the one that's less powerful, being the one that's little, right? But then like some of the greatest things, and younger, younger siblings know this, is, is when the parent shows up. Right? When, you, when you're just getting picked on and finally the parent shows up right now and you're just like, uh-oh, this is going to turn out different. You're going down, right? They see your injustice that you do to me, right? You're, you're going to be taken out, right? And, and, it's, it's, and my poor, uh, my kids, like especially the older siblings, have the dad that was the younger sibling. So you, you know who I sympathize with in those times that people are like, they're getting fussy in their relationship, right? And that's how I thought about it. We we've probably have had that feeling of this feeling so defeated, but then finally somebody shows up that's more powerful, that has the authority to do something about it, and that's what's pictured here. It's a picture of helplessness from our perspective, but then who comes into the room but the warrior king of righteousness who is going to put all things right and defeat the most horrific and powerful evil once and for all. That's what's going on. They don't stand a chance. And that's why there's, there's very little description. They just get captured and thrown into the lake of fire forever. And all those that were caught up, they were judged by God and uh, by Christ's uh, judgment, that sword that came out of his mouth. But there's another aspect of it that the judgment also gets very vivid. 
right? It mentions that there are these birds that show up and gorge on the enemies that are now dead in the field of battle. This, this is set up in Revelation 19, 17 through 18. This is before the description of Christ and the army. And it says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat of the flesh of kings, generals, and, might, and the mighty of horses and other riders, and the flesh of all the people, free and slave, great and small. Whenever a flying being shows up in the book of Revelation, some really crazy stuff is about to go down, and this is no exception. Before the battle even happens, God is preparing for the inevitable. The enemies are going down, and a great supper is about to happen where these birds get to feast on the bodies of their uh, defeated enemies. That's the picture here of God's judgment that's drawing some Old Testament imagery of God's judgment that is already present. One of the things that um, I remember talking to uh, somebody on staff that's been, you know, part of this sermon series, and one of the things that, that she was picking up was like, it just seems that the book of Revelation is essentially an elaborate and repetitive way to, see that, to say that Jesus wins. If you notice that, as we're going through every book, every vision, essentially at the end, God's judgment shakes the world and he wins. And that's what happens here. And this is the most elaborate description of Jesus winning. But you, one of the things I would want to say, like, why does the book of Revelation have to tell us over and over and over and over again that this is what you face, but in the end Jesus wins? It's because we need to hear it over and over and over again with different angles and different imagery because saints we get weary and it seems that what we face in this world and what the church faces throughout history seems to be a powerful foe but then we are reminded in this vision and these visions when it's unmasked that this foe is defeated this is good is done the battle is done it's the victory has been achieved and that's what we get to have reminded in our hearts because we need to hear it. And we not only need to hear about God's justice and judgment in the end, but we also need to hear about the celebration. And there's one more vision of that justice and judgment because the beast, two members of that unholy trinity have been taken out, but there's still one more that's left, the dragon. That's where we get the vision for next week. But here, even in the, in the book of Revelation, in, in, in this vision, you get a picture of where Revelation is not only going to go, but end. In this beautiful vision of what the saints, those that have persevered in faith, get caught up in. And we get a glimpse of that here in Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Because we also need to be reminded of this. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud pearls of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given, to her, uh, given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added these words. These are the true words of God. Heaven here is pictured 
symbolically as the best wedding supper you can imagine. And there's some contrasting happening here. In contrast to Babylon, the great prostitute, you have the church pictured as a bride and eventually a new city of Jerusalem. You have the supper, the bird feast of judgment, and here you have the wedding feast of joy at the Lamb's table. And then it's this invitation, this blessedness. It says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. There are all these, these, these sayings of being blessed in the book of Revelation. Here's one of them, because to be blessed means this is the good life. This is the life of joy. And the life of joy is offered to those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You are invited to the biggest wedding celebration you can imagine, and that's how heaven is pictured with all the dancing and food and the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I mean, we get this. Like, what is the, what is the, the phrase that uh, millennials, Gen Z, it's, it's FOMO, fear of missing out. Do you, this is something that you should have the fear of missing out on. Like, do you ever have an, a situation where, like, you heard of, like, like, this epic party and you didn't get to go to it? And here's the situation where you're being invited to something that, that is going to be way bigger than any of those parties. I got to experience a little bit of this type of like heavenly imagery uh, last night with some friends on the front porch. We're just having a good time, eating snacks, sharing stories. Somebody busts out a guitar at the end of it, and we're playing different songs like karaoke, Foo Fighters, Alicia Keys, whatever. Even some gospel music thrown in there. We're praising Jesus, having a good time. It got so joyous, I was told this morning, that after we all left, a police officer came rolling by that front porch. It wasn't my front porch. I was there. I admit it. I was there because it got too rowdy. It needed to calm down. Somebody called it in. Some joyless person called that in. Do you believe that? Right? You hear a description of that. That's the type of thing you want to go to, right? Blessed is the one who is invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You don't want to miss out on this. And the invitation is open to all of us because it's been purchased by the blood of Christ and the power of his resurrection. And all you need is faith in that. And then your name is on that invitation and the door is open to you. Amen, saints? Amen.